I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. I'm joined today by Chris Lintott, Professor of Astrophysics at Oxford and one of the presenters of the BBC's The Sky at Night. He has a piece in the latest issue of the LRB on NASA's DART mission, the recent and we now know successful attempt to alter the path of an asteroid by crashing a spaceship into it. And the technique could theoretically be used to divert any large objects from hitting the Earth. Hello, Chris, and thank you very much for talking to me today. My pleasure. It's nice to be here. So to begin, perhaps you could tell us what, well, I don't know, should I say where, is an asteroid? So you can think of asteroids as rubble left over from the time that the solar system was forming. So these are the small bodies of the solar system, which have proved to be much more numerous and much more varied than I think people would have expected. We've known about them for a while. The first asteroids were discovered back in the early 19th century, when there was much excitement that new planets were being added to the solar system's catalogue. In particular, there's a thing called Bode's Law, which is this nice geometrical relationship between the orbits of the planets. There's a nice pattern between the size of the orbit of Mercury, the size of the orbit of Venus, the size of the orbit of Earth, the size of the orbit of Mars, and then there's this gap, and then Jupiter and Saturn pick up the pattern. And so it was expected for a long while that there must be a missing planet. And when the first asteroids, particularly something called Ceres, which is the largest of them, was found, that fitted in the gap nicely. And then they kept finding more asteroids. And we now know of hundreds of thousands of these things a catalogue so large that most of them just have numbers rather than names and essentially they're what happens when you fail to form a planet so those in the main belt which sits between mars and jupiter we think that jupiter's influence the gravity of jupiter stopped a large planet assembling in that gap and so we're left with all of these bits now most of them sit happily in the belt there are plenty of asteroids in the outer solar system as well um, pluto has its retinue of objects in the kuiper belt you can think of pluto really although this will be controversial as a large asteroid rather than something rather like the other giant planets but there are also asteroids that cross the earth's orbit and that pose a threat to us most famously, of course, there was the asteroid that we now think hit the Earth about 66 million years ago and caused the dinosaurs to have rather a bad day, week, month, and, and a decade, um, caused that mass extinction. But we still see smaller bodies hit every so often. Um, just a couple of years ago, there was a in the middle of lockdown, there was a, a meteorite that fell on Winchcombe in Gloucestershire and gave us a lovely, rare British example. So we do have these asteroids that threaten us, and that's what DART was designed to do, was to give us a, a chance of, of escaping the dinosaur's fate should we see something large heading in our direction. Um, the difference between an asteroid and a meteorite, is a meteorite any object that falls to Earth? Is that the... Yes, it becomes a meteorite. I'm not sure semantically when it becomes a meteorite. I think the moment it hits the ground. So we think of them as asteroids while they're in space. 
And then meteors or shooting stars are the smallest of these. So if you see a shooting star in the sky, that's usually something the size of a sand grain or something burning up in the upper atmosphere. So small things don't make it through the atmosphere. And then when they land on the Earth, they become meteorites. So that's the rock. So it's partly there's this division whenever we think about the solar system there's the way that astronomers like me think about it which is things you could see in telescopes they're the asteroids and then there's the planetary scientists who come from sort of typically from a geology background they like rocks and hammering things and getting stuff into the lab and so if you pick one of these up it's a meteorite and so that's the distinction but i guess we're trying to stop asteroid too many asteroids becoming meteorites if we possibly can and there's another rock that you write about in the piece which is not a meteorite but it's um it has traces of meteorite dust in the middle of it which tells us quite a lot about what happened with that asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs oh yes of course so yeah so the story i think is relatively well known that we we now believe that an asteroid hit the earth somewhere just off the coast of mexico chicxulub and created essentially conditions of nuclear winter and that caused the mass extinction that we see in the fossil record that ends the age of the dinosaurs and allows small mammal type things to scuttle around and eventually lead to civilization and the lrb and, and various important things like that but it hadn't really occurred to me until recently that we have real geological evidence, the kind that's dug up by people with hammers who like looking at rocks to look at. I write in the piece about an exhibit that's in the Oxford Museum of Natural History, but you can find examples of this in almost any uh, natural history museum anywhere in the world with a decent geology collection. Um, there's this thing in the fossil record called the KPG boundary, uh, it used to be called the KT boundary, which is this point in the record where we see this transition from dinosaurs and, and so on to the next era and it appears as literally a stripe in rocks of that age around the world and and the thing is that that stripe is rich in an element called iridium and it turns out iridium is something that a particular kind of asteroid a particular kind of meteorite comes in so what you're looking at when you see this stripe wherever it appears in rocks around the world in western europe in china even though the impact was in mexico that stripe is a record of the asteroid impact of dust filtering back down through the atmosphere and settling at the end of this great global catastrophe. And there's something remarkably tangible about being able to go into the museum and, and see that. You know, it's this nice story that gets into children's books now about the asteroids and the dinosaurs looking up, regretting their lack of a space program and the fact there weren't dinosaur astronomers to warn them and so on. But to be able to see the evidence for that and it really was this sort of richness of iridium that was the, the smoking gun that led people to believe this slightly crazy idea that an asteroid came in and, and wiped out the dinosaurs when it was discovered in the early 80s. And that realisation, the fact that there was this tangible evidence, I think, was the thing that changed how people thought about these objects. Because for the 180 years or so between their discovery and this sort of rethinking in the early 80s, they were seen as a curiosity these are the small, as I said, the rubble of the solar system. Interesting, perhaps, if you like that sort of thing, but nowhere near as interesting as the magnificent planets and nothing to do with us on Earth. And suddenly we've got this evidence that not only that they hit Earth, which we kind of knew, but that they could have a significant impact on the history of our planet. Suddenly people start worrying about a threat from asteroids, about the fact that we now know of about 30,000 of these things that cross the Earth's orbit. And suddenly the focus turns from these things as sort of what we'll get to in the solar system after we've finished understanding the giant planets to a set of objects that 
that really have a lot to tell us about life on Earth and have a lot to tell us about how we might go about protecting ourselves. I mean, obviously, nothing is as massive as that one 66 million years ago. But the more recent ones have been the one about just over 100 years ago in Siberia. Right, was- yes, the Tunguska impact. This is this is an interesting story because we've never, um, no one's found the impact. Often, where there's a large meteorite impact, we even in, in Winchcombe in Gloucester, we found the meteorite. And if you go to Barringer Crater, or sometimes known as Meteor Crater in in Arizona, which is this great big crater in the middle of the desert, we know that's a, a meteorite impact because the meteorite which is rich in iron, is still buried in the bottom of the crater. There'd be various attempts to excavate bits of it. But with Tunguska, which was the last, I think, big impact that we know of, at least on land, the evidence is all indirect. So trees were flattened across a vast area of Siberia and in a radial pattern around what was clearly an explosion. But nothing's been found on the ground then or since. And so we think that might have been what's called an airburst, where something that was fragile, maybe a bit of comet rather than something rocky, so something icy perhaps, or um, indeed just sort of a loose rubble pile, um, got into the Earth's atmosphere, heated up and exploded, maybe 10, 20, 30 kilometres above the ground. And so that can wreak havoc even if uh, it doesn't get down to the ground. And luckily it was over Siberia where no one saw the impact, no one saw the explosion. It was just the trees were found felled and the devastation was found afterwards. If that had happened over a major city, then things would have been very different indeed. How big does a, a meteorite have to be to pose a, a real threat? I mean, the one that landed in Winchcombe was small enough not to... Well, come on. It, it, I mean, it damaged a driveway. Okay. <laughs> there was a, there's a crater, and actually the, the crater has now been collected and happily taken to, to the Natural History Museum. So, you know, we should, we should respect the driveways of Gloucestershire. I think, but oh, no, absolutely though. No. I mean, it clearly, and obviously, if it landed on on a on a person on your head, as it were, it would cause yeah, it would cause a lot of damage. But the yes, it is this. I mentioned in the piece. There's this slightly odd fact that no one has ever been killed by a meteorite, um, which I guess is a good thing. But there are a couple of near misses in this sort of semi-historical record. There's tales of people sitting under palm trees and hearing something hit the tree, and so on, which you know may or may not have some reality to them. I mentioned as well the the well-known fact that if your car gets hit by a meteorite, which has happened five or six times, then the car goes up in value because meteorite collectors, for some reason, have this obsession with trying to get hold of cars that have been damaged. So, you know, if you want to try and improve things, you can just leave your car out and, and hope for the best. But um, you don't have to have a very big asteroid to do much damage. Nothing as big as the Trixlob impactor that did for the dinosaurs has done for us. That was maybe 10, 15 kilometres across. So that's pretty big. And we now think we found all the things of that size. Something a kilometre across would probably cause nuclear winter. So that's sort of civilization ending, or at least threatening. And something 100 metres across would be much more devastating than, say, the bombs that fell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the Second World War. So 100 metres across is the point at which you know, cities are threatened. And I don't think we'd know the way the celestial geometry works out is that even if we saw something, say, 100 metres across coming, we wouldn't know with great precision where on the Earth it would hit, even though we could be sure, perhaps, that it might hit the Earth. So it's not that we'd be able to tell the citizens of, I don't know, Bogner Regis that they should evacuate with a week's notice. We'd know that maybe it would hit somewhere in Europe or 
Africa. We're actually not very good at even predicting when our own satellites re-enter and deorbit. We're not brilliant at predicting where they're going to come down. Bits of Skylab, the last big space station to re-enter back in the 1970s, ended up scattered across Western Australia. In fact, you can still go and see them. They're still sitting out there waiting for somebody to come and take an interest. So if we can't even predict that, then predicting exactly where a meteorite lands is hard. And so we really do want to be able to detect and do something about even quite small rocks. It's not that, you know, a rock 100 metres across is not that large a thing. It's what, sort of skyscraper sized, something like that. And yet we need to be able to see those coming far enough in advance that we could do something about them. I mean, the objects which are 10, 15 kilometres across... They're presumably quite easy to see with modern telescopes. But. We've got better at it, yeah. We think we've got a complete catalogue of all, all of those that are that size that might cross the Earth's orbit. We've got sorted. And none of those, the really good news is that none of those are going to hit in the next 100 years or so. One of the strange things about this is that you can't really predict more than about 100 years in advance because these things sort of are washed on the celestial tides. So by the time you get more than 100 years out from today, then things like the gravity of Saturn start to matter. and We can't actually predict with great certainty where these things are going to hit. The most worrying one is there's something called Bennu, which is 250 metres across. Fairly recent discovery. It's got something like, well, it's much less than 1%. It's 0.05% chance. So one in a few thousand chance of hitting sometime after the year 2178. But that's our most worrying asteroid right now. So as long as you don't have plans for the year 2178, we don't have to worry about the big things. The small ones, we don't know. We probably catalogued, of the things that are bigger than 100 metres, we've probably got 10 to 30% of them in the catalogues. But that bit of things we're working on very well. We're building a telescope right now. It's a project called the Vera Rubin Observatory, building a survey called the LSST, which used to stand for Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, but now stands for something like the Large Scale Survey of Space and Time, because they felt like some rebranding was necessary. Anyway, it's this enormous thing down in the Chilean Atacama Desert. It's as big as some of the biggest telescopes today, but it's going to scan the whole sky every three nights, partly to look for moving things. So LSST will run for about 10 years, starting 2024-2025, and that should give us a more or less complete catalogue of these near-Earth objects. So then we'll have our list of threats and we'll be able to see whether you should worry this side of 2178 or not. And those are ones which, uh, they're in the solar system, they orbit the sun on a similar sort of orbit to the Earth within a certain... Yeah, or, or at least they're in orbits that cross the Earth. Those are the worrying ones. So they're called near-Earth asteroids because they're usually on elliptical orbits. So they swing in towards the Sun and then back out. Often they start off in the asteroid belt, this region between Mars and Jupiter that I talked about, and they will have interacted with each other. Maybe there was a collision. Maybe there was just a slingshot of two of these things around each other. Or maybe they would have been influenced by Jupiter. They may have strayed too close to Jupiter and then it's given them a gravitational kick. So they end up in these weird orbits that send them swinging in and back out. And that's fine most of the time. And then you have to worry about when the Earth, if the Earth happens to be in the wrong place as these asteroids are swinging back and forth, then we have a collision. Now, this is something that happens all the time with small stuff. This is why we see meteors and shooting stars and get the occasional meteorite fall. But the idea is that we'd be able to see these things coming so that if we had our complete catalogue of 100 metre or so, objects then we'd be able to say that we had a risk in 30 40 50 years time and then maybe do something about it and then the dart mission was to try out one of the things that we well we (laughs) 
you yeah we i think this is this is a sort of humanity scale effort i think you we we could all take credit yeah we'll all take credit for this yes so it's a collective human effort we i'm i'm taking part in that we what we would do in the event of one approaching that whether or not we could just nudge it out of the way yes i mean you talk about some quite number of theoretical ideas about how to do this and one of the nicest ones as you say the idea that you could perhaps paint it a different color and that would affect the way it responded but that sadly doesn't work i really like this idea it's sort of beautiful so all of these ideas tend to start from the sense that you might have a couple of decades so that we found the things early enough that you'd be able to take some quite subtle action so if the thing's coming to hit next week then beyond buying bunkers or you know hollywood tells us to send bruce willis and a nuclear bomb but i'm not utterly sure that either of those things are a good idea even if bruce was available but if you find an asteroid far enough in advance then making a subtle change to its orbit is enough to make it miss the earth by miles and miles and miles 20 30 years down the line and so one suggestion has been just to paint the asteroids white which sounds slightly odd, but there is pressure of sunlight. So the sun exerts a force on everything. So if you can change the colour, you change the way that the sunlight interacts with the way it's reflected from the asteroid. You change the size of that force. If you do that early enough, then you might be able to make a difference. And this is one of the reasons that predicting long-term patterns of asteroid behaviour is hard, because you have to worry about all these tiny, subtle effects. But mostly I like this because of the visual imagery. It's the opposite of Hollywood, right? You don't make a film in which Bruce Willis goes to an asteroid, paints it, (laughs) calls the job a good one and comes back to Earth and then waits 30 years to see if it's worked. It's not quite... Maybe there's some art house world in which we should make that film. But but, um, sadly, that doesn't... More recent calculations suggest the magnitude of the force is not such that that would make a big enough difference. 30 years wouldn't be enough. You'd need, yeah. No, you'd need perhaps even a million. So at that point, we're in trouble. So so we need something a bit less subtle than that. And you get into the wonderful realm of euphemism at this point. So people talk about kinetic deflections or, you know, a surgical impact was used. But basically, we talk about hitting the thing and <laughs> seeing what happens. And that seems straightforward. You know, I, one of the things I love about astronomy is that I think we have this slightly Brian Cox inflected reputation for thinking deep and profound thoughts about the universe and it being quite a subtle science involving contemplating infinities. But a lot of the time, it turns into really just doing the obvious or at least trying to, to find out the obvious. So if something's coming towards you, you don't want it to hit you, deflecting it by hitting it seems like quite a good idea. But it is slightly more subtle than that. When I first heard about this DART mission, which did exactly this, it went and hit an asteroid to see what happened, I thought it was a bit ridiculous because surely we know what's going to happen. We've played snooker. If you hit a ball with another ball, then it bounces off. And yeah, we can first year yeah, A-level physics problem will, will be to work out the speed with which a ball cannons back off when it's hit or so on but the trouble is that these asteroids aren't and we've really learned that they're not snooker balls they're not solid objects in particular lots of the near-earth ones that we've been and visited with various spacecraft seem to be sort of piles of rubble i mean something that would pass for a decent sandcastle rather than something that would pass for a boulder sitting on the beach and so if you've got this sort of rubble pile of rocks and sandy substance and then you hit that with something solid. It's not entirely clear whether you can get a decent impact. It's possible that you might disappear into it. It's reminded me a bit of there was this fear before anything had landed on the moon when planning for the Apollo program with Neil Armstrong and co was underway. 
there was some fear that the surface of the moon would be covered in dust, in regolith, which is what we call lunar soil, but very deep, sandy soil all over the surface. And the idea was that if you landed, you might sink straight into it and not be able to get back out. Now, that turns out not to be true. It turns out that you can land on the moon perfectly safely, as demonstrated uh, in the 60s and 70s. But um, it was that sort of problem. And so I think a demonstration of the effectiveness of this kinetic impact idea is a good idea. And it also means that because we've now done this and we've hit it in a known fashion and seen the results, which was spectacular, then we can in the future, do a better job of planning, working out how big a wallop we'd have to give an, an incoming asteroid. It's also just kind of fun, right? Why not, not try and go and hit an asteroid and see what happens? And the one the one they hit was called Dimorphos, right? Dimorphos, yes. Yeah, and it's in the asteroid belt. It's not a near-Earth object. Yes, exactly. And that was deliberate because you don't want even a tiny theoretical chance of deflecting the asteroid onto a path. It's a funny, almost the first reaction I, anyone I've talked to about this has had has been to ask whether, wouldn't it be ironic if we accidentally endangered ourselves? I'm not sure whether that says something about people's yearning for a simple end to, 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 to life right now or, or whether it's just, you know, that strong sense of irony. So no, this was safe. But imp- importantly, it was a double asteroid. So it's in orbit around a slightly larger asteroid, Didymus. So that makes it easier to see what effect we're having. So instead of trying to measure an impact on an asteroid and then looking for a change in its path around the sun, which might take a while, the idea is to look at a a change in its orbit around this slightly larger asteroid that it's in orbit around. So the asteroid was a few hundred metres across. We hit it with something delightfully described by NASA as the size of a golf cart, which I think produces exactly the right kind of visual image. And it's sort of, in some sense, it's one of the simplest missions that have been flown in a long while. The navigation was impressive, So they travelled 11 million kilometres to get there and managed to hit their target to within 20 metres of what they were aiming for. So the thing that that was really impressive was the navigation worked. But the spacecraft had one camera, took pictures as it went in. We didn't get the last picture because it cut out halfway through a room of scientists. I've never seen a bunch of people celebrate their spacecraft being destroyed before. Um, So that was like, there was a wonderful press conference afterwards where, you know, one of the journalists asked one of the team, whether there was any sadness in watching the spacecraft that they'd built destroy itself. And they said, no, that's why we did it. You know, didn't have any of that emotion at all. It's like, great, we succeeded. We made our interplanetary snooker shot. And so we knew it hit. That was all very exciting. Then we were surprised because it wasn't expected that we'd see much from Earth. And in fact, NASA had kind of discouraged people from looking. There were a bunch of professional astronomers sitting at telescopes aiming to keep an eye on it. I was in La Palma in the Canary Islands with a couple of students. We were supposed to be looking at galaxies, but we'd already decided we were going to sneak over and look at look at the asteroid. It was cloudy, so we didn't get anywhere near it. But they also tried to discourage amateur astronomers from going out and looking out of a fear of, of disappointing people. And we've sort of been here before. NASA has a track record. They hit a comet nearly 20 years ago now with a mission called Deep Impact. In that case, the aim was to study the comet. So they hit the comet and they had another spacecraft keeping an eye on it. And at that point, they asked people all over the world to take a look and no one saw anything at all. 
we were using one of the largest telescopes in the world at that point. The team I was with were the first to report seeing nothing, which is kind of a nice scientific success, but was a bit disappointing. So anyway, in this case, Dimorphos wasn't supposed to put on much of a show, and it actually brightened suddenly, even from Earth. Even in small back garden telescopes, people saw a shell of dust thrown up, confirming it's really more like a rubble pile than a, a solid object. And that dust trail was seen over the next few days to extend out along its orbit. So this enormous trail of debris that we've left in the system. But that left open the question of whether we'd succeeded in changing its orbit, which was the entire point of the exercise. Much faster than anyone expected just a few days ago, people reported that they had measured the new orbit and it changed by a significant amount. So Tesla's being successful, we can actually now, well, I guess if we're being scientifically accurate, we have shown that in at least one case we can alter the orbit of an asteroid. But I think it will give impetus to what we will do if our new catalogue of threats suggests everything. And we're going to go back as well. There's a European spacecraft called HERA that was supposed to be there to watch the impact, but we're kind of late. <laughs> but we knew we were going to be late. We didn't miss it by a few days. We gave up a while ago. So so there's a European space agency spacecraft that's going to turn up in about, I think it's about five years' time, and see what's left on the system, see whether there was a crater, and give us some data about what permanent impact we'd have. But we've missed out on the images for now, but we'll, we'll go back to the system and explore properly. This episode of the LRB podcast is sponsored by the Nine Dots Prize. The Nine Dots Prize is a prize for creative thinking that tackles contemporary societal issues. This year, their question is, why has the rule of law become so fragile? Entrants are asked to respond in 3,000 words by the 23rd of January 2023. The winner will receive a book contract with Cambridge University Press and $100,000 to write a short book expanding on their ideas. For more details and to submit an entry, visit 9dotsprize.org. Details below this episode. And was it known not to be solid before Dark crashed into it, or is there no way of telling that? No, we can't really tell from Earth. All this thing looks like from Earth, even with the biggest telescopes, is a dot of light. It's a point of light in the sky. So that's really all we tend to know about these asteroids from the ground. We see maybe that they have a colour, which tells us something about what they're made of. Sometimes we see they get brighter and fainter, and that's usually because there's some odd shape and they're rotating. So you can work out some idea of shape. But we had no idea really what this was going to look like until we got those images from just the last few minutes of a approach. It is one of now a class of objects that we visited in particular Bennu that I mentioned earlier the one that might threaten us in the 22nd century uh, a probe called Osiris Rex has been to visit that and actually took samples of it and is bringing it back to earth so we can analyze them in the lab and try and work out what these things are made of but the sampling device on Osiris Rex actually had trouble scooping up any of the surface because it was sort of like trying to pick up sand grains with your fingers open everything sort of fell through the scoop and similarly when we've been to other small asteroids we found these things so that's telling us something about how planet formation proceeds really that we had this image that you get a brick and then you make a bigger brick by combining it with a different brick and you build up until you've got something the size of a house and that's your your large asteroid and then you keep going and eventually you get Pluto and Ceres and keep going and then you get Earth and Mars and Venus and all the rest of it. But actually it feels like it's a much more chaotic, a little more difficult process to understand. So there's something we don't really understand about how these things are being assembled and, and how they stay together. So 
we'll want to go back and look at more of these small asteroids if we want to understand. I mean, one of the great adventures in astronomy at the minute is trying to understand how planetary systems get started and evolve. I, I mentioned in the piece that I think the most surprising fact that isn't known generally, but is sort of orthodoxy within my field, is the fact that at the beginning of the solar system, there were 20, 30, 40 things the size of the moon or Mars knocking around and bouncing off each other and causing chaos in the inner solar system. And I think we've all still got this idea that the universe runs by clockwork, that you know, we have this nice orrery picture with all the planets happily orbiting the sun. And so that feels like they should be formed in a very orderly, careful process. And actually, we're beginning to realise that there's a lot of chaos and, and rubble and chemistry and chance happenstance that shapes what happens in the early solar system. And that's part of the message of these small bodies like Dimorphos, which we can learn a lot from when we're not trying to hit them and push them out the way. Have you mentioned in the piece, a year on Venus is shorter than a day, you know, that it spins on its axis more slowly than it takes to orbit the Earth, and that's probably because it was hit. Yes, well, one possibility is because, it, yeah, it turns out all of the inner planets have mysteries that you can explain by having recourse to an early impact. So on the Earth, we're unusual because we have the Moon. No other planet in the solar system has such a large satellite compared to its size. Pluto does as well, but as we've established, Pluto's definitely not a planet. Isn't there an idea that if you saw the Earth from, if we weren't on the Earth, or from that sort of anthropocentric point of view, if you saw the Earth and the Moon from a distance, you might think they were actually a binary planet, that they wasn't. Yes, well, they look like that. There's, a, there's an amazing photo taken by one of the Mars rovers showing Earth in the twilight sky from Mars. And so you have this alien landscape, and then there's this twin evening star shining. And, you know, you can imagine if we'd grown up on Mars, that would be the thing that you'd think of Earth as. It'd be the double planet. And it's unusual. We don't even know yet. We found lots of planets around other stars. We don't know yet whether any of those have moons. We haven't managed to discover an exomoon yet. And so it may be that even within the galaxy, our moon is unusual. But we think that the moon formed after the impact of something about the size of Mars with the young Earth and then the debris forms the moon. That was one of the lessons of the Apollo program. That's a tale told by the samples that were brought back by the astronauts. And Venus, as you say, rotates really slowly, which doesn't make much sense. Mercury is beefier than it should be. It's denser than it should be for such a small planet. And so one possibility is that it formed as something rather like the Earth, the large impact caused it to lose its outer layers, so you're left with the denser core. There's a satellite called Bepi Colombo on its way there. European-Japanese mission is on its way to Mercury right now. One of the things they want to investigate is that possibility. And Mars has... The two halves of Mars look like they don't go together. There's a very flat hemisphere and a very rocky, hilly one. And so possibly that was a giant impact that caused lava plains to flood. So in each case, I'm not sure the evidence for an impact is hugely convincing with the possible exception of the moon formation but if you add them all together you can explain all of them by having lots of these small bodies knocking around that begins to seem convincing it's also when we think about how stuff forms in the disc we think it's quite easy to form sort of moon-sized things and so that suggests it but we also know that stuff moves around early on as well there was this nice idea that you know, the Earth is the way it is because it formed where it is. We've got the rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, are all close to the Sun, and then Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, all gaseous planets are further out. We explain that sort of as a 
problem of or as a result of their environment perhaps except that we now know things have, have flung around a bit Ceres the biggest asteroid in the solar system uh, which sits in this belt seems to we sent a spacecraft there recently too called Dawn and there's evidence that Ceres perhaps formed much further out and came in at some point when we sent a spacecraft to a comet, Comet Vilt 2, there's a spacecraft called Stardust that flew through the comet and then came back with tiny pits of comet that were then brought down to Earth and could be studied. Some of those seem to have formed in the inner solar system, even though comets form further out. So we basically got this chaotic picture that we don't really understand, and picking out these asteroids is helping us try and piece together what seems suddenly to have been a really complex history of the early solar system. Mars's moons then... Because Mars has two satellites, they're much, much smaller, are they? And that's a more predictable than expected. Yeah, those seem to be, well, they have mysteries too. So Phobos and Deimos are the two moons of Mars. They're basically just captured asteroids, we think. So they're about the size of things that you find floating around in the asteroid belt. Mars is on the outside. So they, at some point, got too close to Mars and went into orbit around it. So they're much easier to explain. There is a fun mystery, which I think I've mentioned in the paper before now, that both of them are less massive than expected. Now, there are two explanations for that. One is that they may be like some of these asteroids we've been to, more like rubble piles, and they might be hollow inside which would fit. So, you know, this is adding to this picture that we have of asteroid-shaped things being lighter than expected. Other people have argued in the past that they're clearly alien spaceships parked around Mars and that they're hollow because that's where the aliens lived. Now, we we haven't tested that, so that, that remains a possibility. I mean, it, it, they are good surveillance points. One of the suggestions, as people have thought about sending people to Mars, either for flag planting or tourism or, or, or for science. There is a slight problem in that we think there is some possibility that Mars may still have life there somewhere under the surface. Probably nothing so advanced as a bacteria, but there could be life. And so you don't really want to contaminate this planet with earthly life until we've worked out what's there. Not because there's any threat to us, but you know this is good scientific protocol, really. And so one of the suggestions is that what we should do is go to Mars, set up a base on Phobos, which is the nearer of the two moons. And then you've got Mars spread out behind you, in front of you, you can control robots on the surface and so on. And that would be the ideal way to do a scientific exploration of Mars. The only problem is I don't think it's very satisfying for the tourist brochure. So if the first people who get to Mars are going to be Elon Musk and his friends who want to go and wander a new planet for the sake of selfies, I suspect going nearly to Mars is not quite exciting enough to justify the price tag. So... But anyway, I'm a big fan of landing on Phobos and, and not heading to the surface. I mean, that question of not contaminating, and I mean, it's quite an important one, isn't it? Because one of the other things that seems, is talked about, I mean, I don't know how seriously this is, the idea of mining asteroids, because as you say, that the iridium, which is a very rare element, and it's similar to platinum, and if there were asteroids, I don't know, if there turned out there's an asteroid that had enough lithium in it to power everyone's electric cars there's an argument for bringing it all back to Earth. And I mean, how realistic is that prospect? I think in theory, it works fine. So there's also asteroids that are rich in platinum, probably, and, and so on. As you say, the rare Earths people have talked about getting from asteroid mining. Certainly, if you jump 50 years forward in any self-respecting science fiction universe, we're busy exploring the asteroid belt and, and mining and for all the reasons that you, you say. There's some fun research from economists that shows that this doesn't really work economically because you can't go to the asteroids and bring back a bit 
of platinum, say, you can go to an asteroid and bring back enough to completely crash the price because it would suddenly no longer be rare if you captured one of these asteroids and and brought it into Earth orbit. So funding these expeditions is hard, but there's definitely a resource out there that could be used. The problem at the minute is that getting to space is expensive. And this is where things like the reusable rockets that SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, are building may make a big game-changing difference in the near future. If you can get to the point where putting serious-sized equipment in space is cheap, then the asteroids are a pretty obvious place to go. They're easier to get to than Mars, for sure. Uh, you don't have any of the problems of landing, because if you're there's not enough gravity on an asteroid to make it difficult. Like you're essentially still operating in space. And so I can imagine this happening, but I would bet it'll be 100 years at least before this sort of thing becomes anywhere near routine. Space is big, as I think I, I've written several times now for the LRB. Um, space is surprisingly big, and, and so it seems like the asteroids are just there. It's just the next planet over and then a little bit further, but but I think it would be tricky. And certainly capturing a near-Earth asteroid and bringing it into orbit around the Earth, which people have talked about, would require a lot of power. We've managed to nudge this asteroid, being able to control it or, or move it to where we need it to be is a, a whole different I don't know, it needs to be in chapter three or book three or four in the sci-fi history of the future that we're writing But also in terms of it, I mean you mentioned you know people saying what happens if we pushed it in the way, I mean the, the ways in which that could go catastrophically wrong seem um... Yes, yeah 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 exactly, you wouldn't want your I mean you want your rare earths to be delivered to earth but not in an impact and not scattered <laughs> around uh, <laughs> across the entire face of the planet so it does raise the interesting question I think of coordination of these missions so if we do find let's say in five years time we find that there's an asteroid that's going to hit in 30 years time there are several space agencies nasa have demonstrated this capability which is good but one could imagine the chinese would want to have a mission and so on so you can imagine some quite difficult diplomacy to agree on who was going to nudge what where and sort of the mechanics of that would be quite difficult. But that's the the bit that can be left to politicians to sort out. What we've shown is that we can actually get a craft to these asteroids. Well, I, well, I was yeah, going to raise it. I mean, you mentioned in, in the piece the movie Don't Look Up, which is on the face of it about two astronomers warning about an impending asteroid impact and everyone ignoring them. But, I mean, it's a, a satire or a fable about other more immediate threats, the climate emergency in particular, that also ended up unintentionally being about the COVID pandemic. And the, you know, the problem in that film isn't the science, as it were. And the, you know, we've seen, we have demonstrated, we have the technology to move asteroids out of the way. And I suppose the other thing about it is it seems the threat of an asteroid compared to the climate emergency or even now with threat of a nuclear catastrophe seems or feels closer than it has done for a long time. I don't know. Is there, I mean, there's something slightly, quite reassuring about thinking the idea of an asteroid impact might be a threat in a hundred years, but we already know how to avert it. I mean, there's something oddly reassuring about it. Yes, I think that's right. I think a lot of the attention that astronomy gets, which we enjoy, and I, I like sharing the stories of our exploration of space with people, I think a lot of that attention is because we're an unambiguous good news story. You know, if I tell you something about... If I tell you that Venus's year is shorter than its day, you're not expected to do anything about that. You could just go about your life knowing that that's a thing. And I think that, you know, a lot of what I spend my life talking about fits in that category for people. Even the sort of slightly existential 
fact that there are more stars in the universe probably than there are grains of sand on earth you know is a nice fact to think about for two minutes in your day and again you're not required to change your lifestyle because because of that fact i guess unless you're somebody vested in counting grains of sand on on earth don't look up was interesting i think this would be a threat that we'd know how to solve right we have to do one thing the thing I, from Don't Look Up was the, the way that, that got me was the way that the time ticked away. Because everything I've said, everything that Dart has told us, assumes that we've got plenty of time to act. And that acting early, making a small nudge early on, means you don't need to do something more dramatic later. And that, of course, is very close to the climate situation where mitigation we could have taken 30 years ago and missed the chance to do has, has caused problems now. And it also sent me thinking in a, in a different way apart from wondering what kind of astronomer has their desk next to the telescope with a desk lamp on which is a whole other uh, other problem it made me think about aliens and and what would happen if we detected say an unambiguous signal from an alien civilization lots of friends of mine spend their lives engaged in seti in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and this has been part sometimes mainstream sometimes slightly off the wall part of the scientific endeavor since the 60s but everyone I know who's involved in SETI has this sense that it would be the biggest discovery and the biggest news story of the last millennium if we could say there is a signal coming towards us from Proxima Centauri, from Vega, from whichever of the stars in the night sky you feel like situating your, your neighbour aliens on. Don't Look Up made me realise, I think, that I think it would be in the news for a day or two. Assuming the message wasn't, we're coming to eat you, see you next Wednesday, or something more immediate like that, if it was just, we're here, I can imagine that would lead the 10 o'clock news, I assume. Um, maybe we, you know, hopefully you'd commission a piece in the LRB to reflect on this sort of historical moment. But I think after a week, everyone would go back to thinking about climate or COVID or uh, how to pay the mortgage or what to have for lunch and, and so on. And it would just be a fact that we accept. And, and I think it's quite interesting... This is kind of heretical within the SETI community to talk like this. And SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, that's what it stands for, yeah. That's right, yeah. These are the people who are listening to the universe, essentially, and doing a good job of trying to systematically look for signals that might be aliens. But, yeah, the, obviously it would be important. It would be a huge scientific discovery, but I think it would also fall into this category of things that, on a day-to-day level, we don't really have to think about. It'd be nice to know there were aliens out there. Yeah, I mean, so I'll answer that question, is there life out there? Turns out there is. Oh, well, that's, that's settled then. <laughs> yeah, done. Yeah, what, what should we do next? Uh, and I think it would be, I mean, it would raise all sorts of interesting scientific questions like, what sort of life? How close to us are they? Did they evolve in the same conditions? What is their planet like? You know, what do they think? And so on. But bearing in mind that conversation is going to be difficult across galactic distances anyway I, I think i'm writing the world's most boring science fiction book in which we hear from aliens and then, <laughs> and then... <laughs> it's, it's great we paint the asteroids white and the aliens say hi but the um but i mean what would be because when when quasar is this right was it quasars were discovered that there was a thought that maybe there that the regularity of pulsars sorry yeah yeah pulsars i think probably yeah so these were in the 60s. This was the discovery by Jocelyn Bell Bonnell and her then supervisor, Anthony Hewish. So these were r- repeated regular signals that were pulsing several hundreds, perhaps even several thousand times a second. And at the time, there was nothing known that could cause such regular fast pulses. And so they were sort of jovially called LGM signals for little green men. 
I'm not sure anyone did anything with that hypothesis. At the time, I'm not sure that changed their research, but it was certainly contemplated as, a, as an explanation. Turns out these are the cores of long-dead massive stars that are spinning rapidly, and that was realised pretty quickly. But there is this long sequence of things that people have thought, well, maybe that would be aliens. Canals on Mars. And- canals on Mars, but also the first gamma-ray bursts, these very powerful explosions of high energy radiation that we see coming from space we actually just had the brightest one ever just last week they were originally detected by satellites that were supposed to be looking for the effects of nuclear tests on earth and found that there were these signals coming from space they were believed perhaps to be the exhausts of spacecraft that were going faster than the speed of light because why wouldn't you suggest that as a possibility? We talked about Phobos and Deimos. All, all, all sorts of things have turned out in the long run not to be aliens. But people have contemplated along the way that they, they might be. But you know, one can imagine an unambiguous signal, I think. Something that was pulsing out prime numbers or you know, the football results from 1952 or something would more or less give you a sense that, that there was something intelligent on the other end of the signal. I mean, there is that joke that the surest sign that there is intelligent life elsewhere in the universe is that it hasn't tried to make contact with us. <laughs> yes. Yes, people even talk about the National Park hypothesis, which is the idea that there is abundant life, but it's leaving us alone as a sort of act of environmentalism until we grow up a bit. But it does. it is true that I think you could say unambiguously that when we look at the galaxy, we don't see signs of intelligent life everywhere. People have looked for all sorts of things, ranging from, we, you know, SETI is normally about radio telescopes and listening, but people have looked for indirect things. Even there was some research looking at dust around nearby stars, with the idea being that if the aliens have started mining their asteroids in the way that we talked about doing, then maybe you'd see more dust in the system than expected. And there aren't nearby systems with lots of debris that you could attribute to alien mining. So people have been quite creative at trying to find ways, but... We don't see a Star Trek-style civilization of people zipping around the galaxy and, and building giant space stations that we detect. So if aliens are out there somewhere, then they're, they're reasonably subtle creatures, at least as far as we can tell with our technology that we have right now. So the very last last question that you wrote last year about how meteorites and asteroids get their names, that meteorites bear the name of the nearest post office to the site of the largest recovered piece, which is a very nice, I don't know, sort of bringing it... It's beautiful, isn't it? It's sort of very... It's sort of out of the era of Victorian science, that is. You know, why wouldn't it be the nearest post office? Yeah, this was from, from you know, remotest space to the to the village post office. But um, the naming convention for asteroids, because you have a an asteroid named after you, don't you? I do. Yeah, if you hang around with enough planetary scientists. So, because we've got so many of these things, most of them just have numbers, but there is a convention by which discoverers can suggest names, and there are there are a few rules. Rude words are banned, you'll be pleased to know, in a variety of languages. Um, I rather like the fact that live politicians cannot have asteroids named after them, to avoid controversy. And beyond that, pretty much anything anything goes. So there's a variety of pop musicians and sci-fi and, and authors. And so I like the fact Jane Austen, for some reason, has, a, has an asteroid, which I think is just sort of completely other to the world that Austen creates. But there's something very nice about that. And yes, I, I've seen my asteroid. It looks like a dot. It poses no threat at all. <laughs> to Earth, and I'm keeping an eye on it, because one wouldn't want to feel responsible, I think. If Lintot was on a collision course, I'd, I'd feel pretty bad about, about everything. <laughs> and your, your iridium content is, is yet to be determined. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. Well, I think I rotate reasonably rapidly, or at least my asteroid does. Okay, Chris Lintot, thank you very much. 
You can read Chris Luntot's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with William Davis and John Lantister on the economic chaos, Long Ling on Xi Jinping studies, and Rosa Lister on Rose Dugdale and the Rossborough House art heist. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilbourne, and the music is by Kieran Brunt. <laughs>